This evening we are uh, taking a, a step back from our normal study in the book of Acts and looking at uh, the second commandment as it regards images of Jesus. Now, why would I speak on the second commandment on Christmas Day? Why would I not uh, look at some some other uh, passage? Well, for one thing, uh, it's... This is a, a holiday, a time that we celebrate uh, having to do directly with the humanity of Christ, with God becoming man. And the temptation is usually to make depictions of the humanity of Christ. Another reason is that Christmas next to Easter is when depictions of Jesus are most prevalent. Um, and it's also a time when uh, sentiments are high, when, when uh, uh, we're, we're around family, it's a very sentimental time, um, but also towards God, it tends to be a time when uh, we're thinking more about God and, and thinking more, people are thinking more about Jesus in his humanity. And so uh, we want to think truly of Christ. We want to think accurately of him and uh, and we want to portray for the world our Lord accurately. This evening my, my aim is not to detract from joy. Uh, it's not to make uh, just make people feel guilty about, Things that they have enjoyed, but and and just to try to beat you over the head with with the commandments and with the law. But instead, um, I want to direct your thoughts according to Scripture, so that your joy in Christ might abound even more. The church has gotten so far away from any consideration of the second commandment that uh, many Christians have not even considered that the second commandment would still be applicable or that it would apply to uh, Jesus. Uh, Just this past week, I had some very kindly ladies that stopped by uh, the church and asked if if I would uh, if the church would like this. this large depiction of Da Vinci's uh, Last Supper, and I explained to them uh, that well, this was a depiction of Jesus, and so we and we didn't use depictions of Jesus at this church, and they were absolutely shocked to hear that that would was even a thing that a church would not want a a painting of Jesus, and it it actually became an opportunity then to speak to them about Jesus as God and what the Bible teaches. From my personal experience and what I have seen, Christians who reject depictions of Jesus are often said to be puritanical, sort of pharisaical, joyless, sticks in the mud, who just don't want anyone to be happy and are intent on taking away all of the joy uh, that there is. And uh, they're taking away in with t- removing images. 
removing depictions and picture books and all of these things, paintings, that they're taking away something that is useful to the church for teaching and that is helpful to those who are ignorant and weak. It's also something of sentimental value to the church. It, It helps give sight to those who are too weak to live by faith. It seems as though the, the applying the second commandment to pictures of Christ is limiting us from something that's beautiful, something that's desirable. But this evening, my, uh, my contention is that the beauty of Christ in his incarnation are not clarified, but are obscured by visual depictions of, of Jesus. The beauty of Christ and his incarnation are not clarified, but obscured by visual depictions of Jesus. The first uh, first point this evening, depictions of Christ violate the second commandment and its regulative principle. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time pressing this. There are other places that you could look uh, to have this fleshed out, but just briefly to, to state Uh, this God's moral law is still in effect God's moral law is still in effect it's not in effect obviously for our salvation Paul says in Galatians 2 16 by works of the law no one will be justified so we're not looking to the law as a way of salvation but it is a guide to the believer's life Jesus said if you love me you will keep my commandments John 14 15 And we look to his commandments. What does he teach us? We don't have any problem saying that the commandments such as you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. We have no problem saying those are still in effect. The second table of the law. But there is nothing in scripture that abrogates, that takes away the first table of the law. You shall have no other gods before me. That's definitely still in effect. Even as you look at the end of Revelation, the people that are outside of heaven, outsider dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters. You see second table and first table. That's a second commandment violation. The second commandment is the commandment on images. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is about who you can worship. And then the second commandment is about how you can worship. And this, this isn't just a, uh, a, a prohibition on having little carved statues. It isn't a prohibition entirely on having any depiction of anything. We know that the tabernacle itself had depictions of angels in it, for example. So there can be depictions, but it's about the worship of those depictions. And the images, we've, we know that the, uh, the pagan religions, they didn't, they didn't really believe that that stone statue, that metal statue was their god. It was an image, a way of worship, a way of connecting to their God. So that the statue of, say, Dagon for the Philistines, that was a connection. They worshipped 
the image because it was a depiction of their God and he would be honored through it. This commandment governs our worship. And as with all the commandments, it simply gives the worst in a, if you will, a genre of sins. So the command, the seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. Well, it covers everything else. It covers and you look through the law and it covers homosexuality. It covers fornication and things like this. It's just the, the worst example of that genre of sin. And so when, when it gives this command that we should not make to ourselves any graven image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down yourself to them or serve them. That's covering worship. It's saying, do not worship God in any way that God is not commanded. And he goes on to flesh that out. If you read the Pentateuch, then you can see uh, the way that God begins to flesh that out for the people and to demonstrate for them how they are to worship him. And this is what we get to the, the regulative principle. Uh, I would turn you again to, um, to Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question 109. And it, it fleshes that out. It, it explains that. It's not to be, images are not to be used in the worship of God. Even the golden calf, it didn't matter if they were worshiping Yahweh in the golden calf worship. They had made a golden calf and that was not to be, and I believe that that's what they were doing. It says there that they made a feast to Yahweh, the real God, the true God, but they were using the golden calf. The intent behind it is is irrelevant. You shall not use images. The, uh, and then, well, does this apply to Jesus? And as we saw in our reading of Westminster Larger Catechism 109, making any representation of God of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly or in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it, those are all things forbidden by the second commandment. Think about it. God chose not to give us any accurate depictions of Jesus. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He could have sent Jesus at a time when there were smartphones. He could have sent Jesus at a time when there was digital recording. We could have had the Sermon on the Mount on YouTube. But God didn't do that. He chose to send him at a time when there weren't any of these digital uh, technologies. There aren't any accurate depictions of Jesus. Jesus didn't sit for a portrait. God did not give us these things, and that is instructive to us. Second, depictions of Christ. So first was depictions of Christ violate the second commandment and its regulative principle. Second, depictions of Christ are by nature distorted. 
So one of the common objections is, Jesus is God, yes, I know, but he is also fully man, so we can portray his human nature uh, in a beneficial way. And this is, I've heard this often, we can depict his human nature. What harm is there in that? But all visual depictions of Jesus can only represent his humanity and thus are by nature flawed. They are false. God is a spirit. We teach our children God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Jesus is God from all eternity who took to himself a true body and reasonable soul. And we can only depict that little portion of him, that body. Uh, Thomas Watson, in his book on the Ten Commandments, uh, speaking, uh, uh, is it lawful? And he says uh, to make depictions of Jesus. And he says, no, it is Christ's Godhead united to his manhood that makes him to be Christ. Therefore, to picture his manhood when we cannot picture his Godhead is a sin because we make him to be but half Christ. We separate what God has joined. We leave out that which is the chief thing which makes him to be Christ. All depictions are limited. They focus in on some small aspect And only part of that small aspect, if we depict the crucifixion of Christ, we can depict a little bit of, for example, his pain, his physical pain. But how could you ever get to a point of uh, depicting the, the pains of hell, the torments of soul that he went through? That's the physical suffering was only a very small part of what Jesus went through on the cross. All depictions of Jesus are interpretive and thus distort Jesus. You think about a painting. If you have a painter, uh, he's making a portrait, he uses a subject. If he's trying to make a, a picture of something that he's imagining in his mind, he'll have a model stand there for him. And it's always going to be a picture of somebody, perhaps somebody that the artist has seen. It's someone, it's it's something that he's in his imagination from people he's been around. But it will be influenced by the artist's mind or by the people around him. For example, Rembrandt's depiction of Bathsheba is actually a painting of his mistress and has a story behind it where he wants to depict the the difficulties of being in that society and and the difficulties he was having uh, because of this uh, adulterous uh, relationship. And one I want to give you a an example from uh, a current example. One and I'm going to get it go into a little bit of detail using this illustration because it is so prevalent right now and so many people are using it. The video series, The Chosen. Uh, Right now, I think that the estimate is something like 110 million people have viewed that series. Many churches are playing it and using it for evangelism. 
But you think about the depiction in a movie. All movies are have interpretation. They're they're by nature interpretive. The the uh, director and the screenwriter they all have their participation in its uh, in in making a movie. And I don't know about you, but I've never trusted a movie maker to get my favorite fiction book right. They always get some detail off, or maybe they completely change a scene or get rid of a character that I thought was important and or add in some other character, combine things. We, I wouldn't trust a TV series to tell me about Abraham Lincoln. I wouldn't even trust a documentary series to tell me ac- accurately about George Washington. Why would I trust a movie maker, even a Christian movie maker, to give me an accurate portrayal about Christ, let alone all of these other things, that the other problems that it must be portrayed by an actor, by a sinful man, with all of his personal interpretations and his personal inflections and his personal emphases. They are prone to failure. They are prone to distortion. Even, even just the manipulations of a movie. Movies are created for manipulation. You think about the music that is played, the lighting that is done, the makeup that is done just so to evoke emotion. I know I have cried in scenes that in a movie that I know those are fictional scenes, and yet... I am moved to emotion through the uh, through the skill of the movie maker. But let me let me give you just one perspective from from a uh, an online uh, newspaper called the Texas Monthly, and this is just one of many many um, uh, examples that I could give, and uh, I could give you pages of them, but. Here is is more of a secular perspective on the TV series The Chosen about the life of Christ. The title of the the, uh, article is The Chosen is Christian TV that even heretics can get behind. Here's just a a little, little bit from that quote. You've likely never seen a Jesus as sitcom witty as the one portrayed in The Chosen, the hit streaming series filmed right here in Texas. This Messiah and his disciples have a quick, quippy, lightly teasing banter that suggests their true holy scriptures include old DVDs of friends. Although The Chosen draws directly from the New Testament, it's become a global phenomenon, largely because it doesn't treat the Gospels as gospel. Its creator, Dallas Jenkins, wanted to make a show with a similar naturalistic bent to some other TV shows that it lists that delved into the people and the politics of Jesus' time. That meant less emphasis on the divine and more focus on the human, Jesus included. End quote. Is that really the Jesus of the New Testament? Is that the Jesus who is the stone of stumbling and rock of offense? The one that Paul said he is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles? 
This is entertainment for the Gentiles. The viewers of this are not seeing Jesus. They're looking at a fictional character designed as entertainment who sometimes uses scripture. They're not being led to a true knowledge of God. The one depicted in that movie is not Jesus. And if you watch, and I've watched a number of interviews with the director, he seems like a Christian man with the best of intentions and a real desire to honor God. But he adds to scripture and he says so. He, this is a quote from one of his interviews. We start with the premise that we're not going to change anything that's in scripture. And then anything that we add is going to be plausible and not a contradiction to the character of Christ or the Gospels. I don't want a plausible Jesus. When it comes to the God-man, I want to know what he said and what the truth is about him. The nations need to know what Jesus says, not a plausible fictional depiction of him. This is not George Washington. This isn't Robert E. Lee or Abraham Lincoln or some other historical character that if we get it wrong, oh well. Jesus is life or death. Then there are the, uh, the other objection that is often raised, and I won't spend as much time on this, is that depictions of Jesus are not intended to be worshipped, but to instruct us on the person we are to worship. No, we're not going to worship that picture. If we watch the movie, if we, if we look at these pictures of Jesus, we're not going to fall down and worship. Why not? If this is Jesus, why would we not worship? When we hear of Christ, we ought to be driven to worship. The disciples, when they saw the resurrected Lord, think of Thomas. When he saw Jesus and he knew it was Jesus, what did he say? My Lord and my God. Look at what, why I wanted to bring to you this first chapter of Revelation. When John sees him, John who had spent three years with him, John who knew Jesus personally before and after the resurrection, when John sees Jesus here, one like a son of man clothed in a long robe and with his golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head white like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. When John saw Jesus, he fell down as though he were a dead man. He was overcome with worship, overcome with the sight of Jesus, the one whom he loved. This was the glorious Christ. I believe that the depictions of Jesus, when we get into them, they suffer from a fundamental lack of the fear of God. And from a lack of belief that God's revelation is sufficient. This, what's given to us in Revelation, that's a picture of Christ. That's a picture of Christ that God has given to us. And that's sufficient for us. 
we can look at that and it drives us to worship. It drives us to the true Christ. Not to someone's, some artist's thinking. Not to some artist's interpretation or to a plausible Jesus. It drives us to the true Christ. And that's the one we need. Now, God can and has used depictions of Jesus. For example, I've known people. Uh, he has used depictions for, for the salvation of people. And I've, I've met people who watched the Jesus movie, the, the older one, the old Jesus movie, and were saved. But just because God can do something and does do something on his own doesn't mean that we have the ability to do such things. God can do as he pleases. We, we cannot. God's, God's used near-death experiences for people to be driven to him, to be driven to salvation. But we don't incorporate near-death experiences in our evangelism. We, use, we obey God and use what he has given to us. Thirdly, As depictions of Christ are by nature distorted, they necessarily obscure Christ rather than reveal him. The visual depictions of Jesus are not authorized by God. They're not. And one of the things that I noticed is something I, I, as I was thinking about this, that came to me is there's a real difference between the preaching of the word and the, um, and, and depictions of Jesus, um, whether it's in painting or uh, especially in movies. God has authorized the preaching of the word, the reading of his word. He's authorized the sacraments. These are all depictions of Jesus. But think about preaching. When I'm standing here in the pulpit, if I am speaking truthfully, if I am being uh, faithful to the scriptures and faithful to God's word, I speak as an ambassador of Christ. Paul said we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on, the half, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But once I get into my own opinion, if I start spouting my own opinions, I cease to be an ambassador for Christ. I become someone using this not as a pulpit from which to preach the word of God, but as a bully pulpit for my own opinions, for my own agenda. And you can see that as you are in the audience, as you're watching me, as you're listening to me. This is James Clark speaking right now. Let me check from scripture if this is true. Is James Clark speaking the truth about God? Is he speaking truly about Christ? In Acts 17, the Bereans, they heard Paul. They said, this sounds right. Let's go to the Bible. And they double checked. Is Paul speaking truthfully? Is this really what the Bible says? They heard Paul's preaching. They checked it. And yes, that was true. And they accepted it. If it had been false, then Paul often said, listen to what they say. Pay attention, there will be false teachers. But there's a difference when it comes to depictions of Jesus. The portrayal says, this is 
Jesus. There's no way to vet the artist in his painting. What did you mean by this? What were you getting at with this lighting, with this particular depiction? And a a movie director might say, well, check my work. Go and look at the scriptures and see if this is so. But it's different than preaching. Because when you see it on the screen and the words are coming out of one supposed to be Jesus. What is it saying? It is saying this is the word of Jesus. This is what Jesus said. It would be more like uh, more similar to to, uh, it would be similar to me getting up here and having written my own scriptures and written my own quotes from Jesus and telling you that Jesus said these things when he had not really. But at its base, it is unauthorized where God has authorized the preaching of his word. Romans 10, how then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without some preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is what God has given the foolishness of preaching. We don't know why God did this. In his wisdom, he chose what the Bible calls the foolishness of preaching. He chose these clay, his treasures to be put in clay vessels. It's for his own glory that he's done this, but we have to do it in the way that God has given us. Or we distort what God has given us. A distorted picture can only detract from the one that we love. If you love Jesus, you do desire to see him. Just think of, think of a, a, a young couple. They're engaged. And uh, let's say the young man is a soldier and he's called away. He has to, he's deployed overseas. He has to go to war. He leaves behind his fiancée. If they're deeply in love, they want to see one another. They desire nothing more than to see one another. They miss each other terribly. They send letters. But the letters aren't enough. They want to see one another face to face. Let's say this young couple, they had no photos to give one another. They could only use letters. And so the young lady goes and she wants to see her fiancé. She desires to see his face. And so she clips out pictures from a magazine. And she puts them in a frame on her bedside. She takes them with her to show her family members. This is my fiancé. She calls that picture from the magazine by her fiancé's name. Is that accurate? Is that really honoring to her fiancé, to the one that she loves? It isn't him. She can claim it's him all she wants, but that is not the one that she loves. It's a distorted view of her love. It's not helpful to her it's not useful in their relationship and her fiance would not be well served or well pleased 
to know that she's looking at a picture of another and claiming that it's him. If we love Jesus, we desire to see him. Ours is the desire like that of Song of Solomon. The young woman desiring her, the one she loves. She says, on my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? This is the the believer's heart to Christ. I want to see Jesus. We're like the blind men who came in John 6. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's our desire. We want to see Jesus. What did Paul, his, his, what was his desire? Yes, I want to stay. I love the church. I love the people in the church. I'll stay as long as God has me to serve the people in the church. But what it was his desire? He desired to go and to be with Christ. What about John in 1 John chapter 3? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Is that your desire to see Jesus? It's good. It's a good desire to long for him, to desire to see him As he is. To be with him. To be in his presence. To have the vision that John had. Of the resurrected and glorious Christ. It is good. We ought to have a longing in our souls. Have you seen him. Who my soul loves. But. Images of Christ obscure that. They obscure the one we love. It's it's a false representation. It, it satisfies that longing with something that is a lie. It can never give us the truth of the one we love. Think of, think of the young couple once again who are engaged and waiting for the wedding night. When the young man will be able to have his bride, she will be his entirely. He can't wait for that night. He just thinks of his wedding night. He longs for it. What does it do for him if he satisfies himself in the meanwhile with images of other women? He can call them by the name of his beloved, his betrothed, but it's a lie. It detracts from his love. It satisfies in a way that is not useful. It detracts, it takes away. The longing is good. We are to be those who long to see Christ, who long for heaven, who long to see him as he is. But let us not satisfy it with half-truths, with lies. We're also prone to a weakness of the flesh. Think of the bronze serpent. The bronze serpent was given for the salvation of Israel. 
You can find that in Numbers, the story of the bronze serpent, when they were they were being attacked by uh, by venomous uh, snakes. Their vipers uh, were killing them, and so then God had Moses make the bronze serpent. They lifted it up in on a on a pole, and then whenever anyone was bitten by a snake, they would look in faith upon that bronze serpent and would be saved from death. That was a picture of Christ. Jesus says in John 3, as he was talking to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It was a picture of Christ. It was for their salvation at that time when God gave it to them. It was a good thing. But you find in 2 Kings chapter 18, that they begin worshiping that golden serpent or the bronze serpent. They had been worshiping and looking to it in a way that was evil. We are prone to using things poorly, even good things. We are prone to use them poorly. And so we ought not to use things that will be a stumbling block to us, will lead us astray. We're not stronger than Israel. We're not better or made of better stuff than them. We're prone to many of the same sins as they. Instead, our longing for Christ ought to lead us to use what he has given us better. You want to know Jesus? You want to know more about him, to see him? Don't look to movies or paintings. Look to his word. He speaks to you in his word. It's a living word. It's not a dead word. It's not an old dusty thing. It's the living word of God that he uses by his Holy Spirit that he gave to you for your good, for your life. Use the word. The preaching of the word. He has said, as I read earlier from Romans 10, he has said that he will use that. For your faith. What about the sacraments? You want to see Jesus? God has given us a depiction of Jesus in the sacraments. And you see there that that his sacrifice depicted in the in the broken bread and the poured out wine, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And we see that, but, but it's a remembrance of him. It points to what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. It's, it's a complete thing that, that feeds us and that helps us to know Christ better, to remember him as he wanted us to remember him. It reminds us as we do this in remembrance of him, That he's alive. If you look at the depiction of the crucifix. If that's the image that you have. Constantly before you. Do you see Christ alive or dead? Christ died. But the death. But death could not keep its prey. He is alive. And we worship the living Christ. We see depictions of him in the manger. But he's not a child. He was a child for a very short time. That lasted only a moment. We worship the risen 
and glorious king. The one who John saw. The one who holds all authority in his hands. Think of how could we capture Christ in a picture, in a painting? How could a movie ever try to portray the one that we love? The one who has been from all eternity, who is everywhere present, who has all power. Listen to this from Colossians 1. This is our Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's our Jesus. That's the one that we worship. Jesus is much too beautiful. Far too wonderful for our feeble depictions. Let him speak to you. His letters of love. In his word and sacraments. And you respond in prayer and participation in the sacraments. Give yourself over to love for the one who is first love you. Nothing useful for us is accomplished when we set our hearts, our love on the limited, distorted depictions that we are able to produce as sinful men. You see Jesus in Revelation 1. He's glorious and bright. You see Him in Revelation 5, the sacrificial Lamb who's given Himself for His people. Yet the only one worthy of opening the judgment scrolls. You see him in Revelation 19 as the warrior going forth on his war horse to defeat his enemies. In Revelation 22, he's the light and life by which all the inhabitants of Zion dwell and rejoice. The human crafted depictions of Jesus can only detract from the glories of Of the one who has loved your soul. Beloved, you will see him. You will see him soon enough. You will see him as he is. Don't accept a substitute. Lord our God, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has loved our souls. We ask that you would help us. Help us to know Him. Help us to desire Him. Help us to seek Him. O Lord, help us to see Him truly and to never present to the world a picture of Jesus that is in any way distorted, but that we would be able to show the world Jesus as He is. Lord, we desire to see Him. We desire to know Him fully and to be fully known.
we desire to see truly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, we will turn to hymn number 294, the Song of Zechariah, also from Luke chapter 1.